Verse 3 and 4, this is page 1238 in a Schofield Bible. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. I would think you'd, you might think it's a little unusual for Paul to get a revelation from God that he's not supposed to talk about. For that matter, anybody else that got revelation from God, it would be unusual if they were told not to tell it. But here it says, unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. He doesn't actually explain that very much because it's not lawful for a man to utter those things. I wanted to look at several similar places, similar places in the whole Bible where the prophet or the man receiving the revelation from God didn't have permission to tell the story he had. In Daniel chapter 8, page 913, Daniel's gotten a vision of much that's coming in the future. Daniel chapter 8, and if we get down toward the end of the chapter, verse 26, verse 26, talking about the Antichrist in verse 25 and 26, the vision and the, of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Therefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. The angel giving the revelation to Daniel for God said, don't publish this, shut it up. It's not for now, it's for later. It's for many days, down the road. In the book of Revelation, something, oh, there's that, something much the same is given. In Revelation chapter 10, page 1399, just go to the back of the book and come in a little bit. John is seeing and hearing things in heaven, and here he records, and when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Whoa, there's something John heard that he wasn't allowed to write for us. Even the prophets themselves didn't always get what it was that they were writing about. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the first letter of Peter, chapter 1, page 1312, in verse 10, Peter's talking about Jesus. And in verse 8, he says, Whom having not seen you love, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You receive the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And then in verse 10, he says, Of that salvation, of which salvation the prophets, the prophets themselves have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. It's in the book. It's in the Old Testament. Peter says so. And the prophets themselves that wrote about it we're trying to figure it out. They were searching what, verse 11, or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. When the Spirit testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. In prophecy of the coming Messiah, there are two different pictures. There's the picture of the suffering Messiah. We think of Psalm 22, 
or of Isaiah 53 and these other passages that describe in great detail the cross and his death for sin. And then we would think of the glory that should follow all the passages about the coming king and ruling over his kingdom forever. But he goes on, Peter goes on in his letter, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed, well, they got this, not unto themselves, but unto us. They did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The prophets did understand that they were not writing from God for themselves. But for the folks down the road who happen to be us in the time after Christ has come and fulfilled the sufferings of Christ, and we look forward, like they did as well, to the glory that should follow. What a great phrase. You realize that Paul and Apollos and some of the great preachers whose work is recorded in the New Testament had a two-point message. The two-point message when they went to the Jews and to the Gentiles was that Christ had to suffer had to die and rise again, and the other half of the message, this Jesus is Christ. They didn't think of saying Jesus Christ together and think they'd be understood as referring to God's Messiah, whose name happened to be Jesus. They talked about the coming Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, the Christ, the Messiah, and then pointed out that the one who fulfilled the prophecies was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God. So things that were revealed by God and then the writer or the prophet was told, keep that, hold that, shut it up, it's for later. It's for later. We go back now to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, we'll drop down to verse 7. This is about page 1239 in the Schofield Bible. Paul was talking about himself when he got this kind of amazing revelation, that uh, words that were not allowed to be told. <coughs> Excuse me. And turn away from the microphone and I'm wearing it on my head. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me. There was given to me, well, Paul got a gift. <clears throat> to keep him from being exalted above measure because of all the revelations he got, he was given a gift, a thorn in the flesh. I've lived in Florida, at least in the wintertime, all of my life, except when I was off in the Marine Corps. And when we were kids and came down to Florida, we'd see a stretch of grass or a sand, and, oh, there's something attractive beyond it, like the ocean. And we'd jump out of the car and go running across and get about 20 feet and cry out and die and fall to the ground in pain because of the sand spurs that were there. Thorns in the flesh, I am familiar with those. Paul's might have been worse than mine, but I know what a thorn in the flesh is like. And he says it was given to him, apparently like from God, God gave these things to him, but it's the messenger of Satan. God uses his adversary any way he wants to, and he uses Satan by this thorn in the flesh to buffet Paul, to buffet me, and to beat him around. Buffet means what you think it means. It's uh, kind of getting clubbed about. And he said, it was given to me lest I should be exalted above measure. Do you see that he said the same thing twice at the beginning and at the end of verse 7? Paul, why do you have that great 
pain, lest I should be exalted above measure. Why do you have it? Lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul is understanding and repeating for us God's concern that he not be too big-headed. Verse 8, he's a prayer man. This, for this thing, I besought the Lord three times, thrice, that it might depart from me. Well, certainly, if you pray for something three times, God will answer. Yeah? And he, God, the Lord, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. What an answer. God did answer his prayer. He said, no. <laughs> Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In my notes, I make a, a thought here. There's little point to guess, to guess at what might be the nature of the thorn affliction. It might have been a physical malady. Many guess that it is. It might have literally been an angel of Satan, the angel of Satan, the dread spirit that shows up to intimidate Paul now and again. If you've ever read or watched the history of the man Martin Luther, the reformer who broke with the Catholic Church in Germany, you know that he testifies that many times he was set upon by Satan, by the devil himself, fearsome angelic beings, whether it was Satan himself or not, Luther thought it was. He was intimidated, and Paul says, uh, Paul says, this is the messenger of Satan. Maybe this is what it is. Maybe it's a spiritual attack. Maybe it's physical. Some have suggested malaria will cause symptoms like what he's talking about, pain that comes and goes and comes again and goes and comes again and goes and just builds and builds and buffets you. Some have suggested, since Paul had eye trouble, he had to use somebody else to write his letters. When he didn't use somebody else, he says, look how big my handwriting is. See how large a letter I've written with my own hand. But we don't know what it was, but we do know what it was for. Lest I should be exalted above measure. And God says, I'm, that's going to be good. When you are weak, I'll be strong, and you'll get what I want done, done. Most gladly, verse 9, therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I take, verse 10, I take pleasure in, and he gives this list infirmities. That's like the fellow at the pool that Jesus came to that couldn't get up and walk on his own. And Jesus came and said, do you want to be made holy? He says, I've got nobody to help me into the water. That's where the healing takes place. And Jesus said, I got it. Get up, take up your bed and walk. That's an infirmity. That's called an infirmity. Same idea, same word. Reproaches. That's where they tell you you're a bad guy. Wouldn't you hate it if you were a preacher or a Sunday school teacher and you get called out in public and say, you're, you're just wrong-headed, you're just mean to your wife, you're bad with children, you're, you're doing wrong things, you're reproaches. True or false, their reproaches hurt. Somebody on one of the social media said something about me the other day that I have to think about because certainly he thinks it. He said that I was 
uh, I don't remember all the words, stubborn and, and uh, not interested in the truth and such. He was one who was teaching works for salvation, so I'm not going to worry about it too very long. But infirmities, reproaches, necessities, that's when you don't have what you need. If you don't have enough food, food is a necessity that you might fall in trouble with. If you don't have enough water and you're thirsty, that's a necessity. If you can't get air, that's a necessity. And Paul says, I just, when I'm short on these things, God will, God will take you through it. In persecutions, we think in our experience we're persecuted if somebody says, nyan, boo boo, or look, they're a Jesus freak or something. That's not persecution. Persecution is where they say it is illegal to be a Christian if you don't deny that you're a Christian and offer a pinch of incense to the Roman emperor, to the Caesar, you're going to be executed. Then you got a choice. I can live by denying Christ, or I can be faithful to Christ and die. That's persecution. You haven't faced that here yet. I don't know if we will. They will in the tribulation period. Persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. We talk about things being stressed. We talk about people being stressed out. But if you stress building materials, sometimes you stress it too far and it, it splinters and cracks and breaks. Distresses are things that are stressed beyond their unity or their integrity. Stressed out. We use that term lightly, but distresses is a real, real problem, and many people face. And Paul says, I take pleasure in distress. For when I am weak, when I can't, I just can't do it, I just can't do it, God says, then I'm, I, my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength, my strength, my grace is sufficient for thee, so I'll just glory in my infirmities. And then it'll be the power of Christ that rests upon me when I get it done. So that's the end of that little section. Verse 11, down to verse 9. It's a little bit longer, but we're, we're rolling right through here. 11 through 19. I'm not, we're going to start here. Page 1239. Paul says this to the Corinthians one more time. I am become a fool in glorying. All this stuff like I'm bragging, man. You have compelled me. I ought to have been commended of you. You should be the one standing up for me. You should be the one saying, yes, Paul's an apostle. We know it because he led us to the Lord. I have, for I ought to have been commended by you. In nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, even though I'm nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. What is it wherein you were inferior to other churches except be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. I didn't take your money. <laughs> I didn't take things from you. Verse 14, he says, look, it's the third time I visited you, then I wrote you a letter. I'm ready to come to you. I'm going to write you this letter. I'm ready to come to you. I will not be burdensome to you. I'm not going to come to get your stuff. I seek not yours, but you. I don't want what you have. I want you. The children ought not lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Now, I've seen bumper stickers that say otherwise. A big motorhome going down the road says, I'm spending my children's inheritance. And I think, 
I, I kind of like that, but that's just me. Verse 15, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Wow. These people that he had to rebuke and tell them they should be standing up for him, his attitude toward them, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. I'll give you what I have. I'll give out all that I have. Be spent. Spent out. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Even if you respond badly to this love of mine, I'm going to keep on loving, and loving more, and loving more and more abundantly. Be it so, verse 16, I did not burden you, but being crafty, I caught you with guile. I'm going to get you to love me anyway. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent to you? When I sent Titus or these other folks, did I make a gain of you? Did we get stuff from you? Did we take your money? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Those two fellows, did they make a gain of you? They walked like I did. Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? They didn't take stuff from you. Again, think you that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak before God in Christ. This is him. I'm telling you the truth. We do all things, dearly beloved, for your building up, your edifying. That's kind of a long passage together there. He starts off saying it's foolishness to talk like this. His recitation of his own qualities was foolish, and he blames them for it. You should have been standing up for me. They should have been the ones standing up for Paul rather than inviting in the other, even false teachers. He says, now you saw by my hand the signs of an apostle, verse 12. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. There's three Greek words there, signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. They are the same three Greek words that are used in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I think Paul wrote that too. This was one of the reasons, I think, just a little reason. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4, he talks about this so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. That word signs is the same word used in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, 17, excuse me, Mark 16, 17, i get there in a moment, click. This, <coughs> excuse me, page 1069. Jesus speaking before he left. His, this is Mark's rendition of the Great Commission. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents if they drink any deadly thing. Uh, what did it, uh, they shall t if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Mark 16, 17, and 18 reports the same thing prophetically from Jesus' mouth that Paul in Hebrews 2 says happened, that the ones that heard and saw Jesus teaching about salvation, their authority was established because God gave them signs and wonders and diverse miracles to do. That was what they were for because they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the whole book. They just had the Old Testament. The authority was established by the signs and wonders and divers miracles. And that makes sense. 
One more mention as we're sort of at that thought, signs, in, uh, that was not what I wanted to do. In John's Gospel, you know that he says there were many other signs done in the presence of our presence, more so than could be written. And then he says, but these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John kind of giving the purpose for including what he did include in his gospel. It's a gospel presentation. It's a gospel tract, if you will. The signs were done. And the ones that were done were recorded by John so that people would believe. I'll repeat again this 12, 14. He says, I'm not going to be burdensome. I don't seek yours but you. I'll be gladly be spend and be spent. Though the more I love, the less I be loved. Verse 14. And the people I sent unto you, they didn't make a gain of you any more than I did. Verse 19, we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. They got nothing to accuse him of. Verse 20 and 21, Paul has to say, I still worried about this one kind of thing here. He still has the fear that the things he had to rebuke back in 1 Corinthians might still be under the in the city of Corinth in the church. I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as you would not. He says, I might have to come in and do some correcting. Don't make me come back there. <laughs> lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbiting, whisperings, swellings, tumults, and lest when I come again my God will humble me among you. And I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. He says, the stuff that I tried to correct with my first letter, I'm worried, I'm worried it might rise up again. That's the end of chapter 12. Chapter 13, he says of this letter, this is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other. If I, will, if I come again, I'm coming, I will not spare. It's like Mama saying, don't make me come up there. Don't make it. Or if you're in the card, Dad says, don't make me come back there. You don't want that to happen. I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in my, me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you, though he was crucified through weakness, and he liveth by the power of God, we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Verse 5, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves, know you not that you you know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? Now, Paul is not challenging them to find out whether or not they are believers. He's writing to believers. But he is challenging them whether they're living up to this Christian life. The way I worded it is give yourself a real test. Are you up 
for this Christian life. <coughs> he says, prove your own selves. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says that you may prove the will of God. And I like to teach, that doesn't just mean find out what it is. I like to remind you of the incident where David the boy went up against Goliath the giant, and as he was getting ready to go out there, the big man, King Saul, who was a head and shoulders above all the people of Israel, tall man, says, give him my armor, put my armor on him, give him my sword and my shield. And David puts him on, and you can just imagine, David's a normal-sized person, Saul is bigger, and he puts on Saul's armor and picks up Saul's sword and shield and spear, and David's headed for the door, kind of dragging along, and he said, wait, 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 get this stuff off me. <laughs> I have not proved them, is what's recorded in the Bible that he said. And to prove something is to know by experience how it works. He says, I killed a lion and I killed a bear and a wolf with my sling. I can put a stone in this leather piece that's got straps on it, and I can give it a whirl and hit it at a hair's breadth. And it's a big stone, and it'll take care of it. He says, I got my artillery here. I can do this with this. I don't know about that sword. I'm not sure I can get it up to poke him with it. Paul says to the Corinthians, prove your own selves. Know by experience that you have what it takes to be in the Christian life. Start glorying in your infirmities. Don't you know your own selves? Jesus Christ is in you. And then he says, except you be reprobates. Word that's not often understood clearly. It's only used two or three times in the New Testament. The best ways to see it is 1 Corinthians 9.27. 1 Corinthians 9.27. That might be right here. Let's see. No. Yes, there. Paul uses this same word at the end of verse 27. He says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. That's the same word translated reprobate in 2 Corinthians 13.5. What's he saying? I'm afraid I'll be lost? Not at all. I don't remember which Olympics it was, but I watched an Olympics one time, a Summer Olympics where there was an American in the running, not for the first place, but for between third and fourth place on a, on a distance race. But it was one of those races, maybe a, like a 440 or whatever, that you had to stay in your lane all the way to the end to make the distances the same. They had a staggered start and a finish line that was in the same place for everybody, but they had to stay in their lane all the way around the track. And you could see this fella came in first, this fella came in second, and the guy in third place just edged out the American. He wasn't going to get a medal. But they held up the award ceremony, and after a while, they called the American up to the stand. They said, on review, the fella that should have gotten the bronze medal got out of his lane just before he got to the finish line. He's disqualified. That's adokimas. That's this word translated reprobate or castaway. It means disqualified because you're not running in between the lines. Paul says, I'm trying to bring my body into subjection so that I don't 
become disqualified for the rewards that God has for me. And that is very much the same as what he says in 2 Corinthians in verse 5, uh, sorry, chapter 13, verse 5. Prove your own selves. Jesus Christ is in you. You can experience this. You can know it by experience unless you get outside the lines, except you be reprobates. Don't be disqualified from the rewards God has for you. Verse 6, he encourages them again, I trust that you shall know we are not disqualified. We're not reprobates. And then now we will look back to chapter 3 just for a moment because Paul said this in chapter 3 in verse 1 through 3. Do we need again to commend ourselves? Need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You, you Corinthians, you're our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. You know you, are, you know our ministry is among you is good because you're saved because of me being there. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistles of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone but in fleshy tables of the heart. Can you imagine somebody coming in here to our current congregation on Sunday morning where there's still some people that enjoyed the ministry of Dr. Hank Lindstrom? Somebody coming in here and saying, Ah, that Hank Lindstrom. He was, he just was a, he did his own thing. He didn't, he wasn't right on the Bible most, he was just wrong. I don't know, I'd stand up and say you're, you're, you're out of line, guy. But the people of this church know Hank Lindstrom, or knew him. And they might try that same thing about Dr. Arnold or Jesse. But Paul says, Corinthians, you're my credentials, you're my credentials. You're my epistles written in your heart. You know. You know. You're manifestly declared. I'm sorry, I lost my mind here. <laughs> the rest of the passage in, in verse 3, we already read it. Okay. So we go on to chapter 13 and verse 7. Now I pray to God. But you do not, you do no evil. <laughs> not that we should appear approved, it's not for my sake, but that you should do that which is honest. Even if I was disqualified, you should get rewarded. You get yourself a reward. Do what's right. Don't do it for me. It's not how I will look. Do good, even if Paul says, even if I look bad. Verses 8 and 9, we can do nothing against the truth. We just do things for the truth. We are glad if we're weak, as long as you're strong, and this also we wish, even your perfection. We are for the truth. We don't do anything against it. We're for the truth, and we are for you. We are for you. We are glad when you are strong, even if we appear weak. Our prayer is your perfection, your complete restoration, you getting yourself equipped for the gospel ministry. Do, do you know... The verse in Ephesians chapter 4 about the gifted men. Jesus gave gifts when he went up on high. He gave gifts to the church. He gave some, verse 11 says, apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. What for? For the perfecting or the equipping of the saints. It's like going down into the armory 
When the enemy is at the gate, everybody down to the armory and get yourself what you should have and get yourself a sword and get yourself a shield. Get a bow and some arrows. Get a spear. Get your equipment. The pastor, the evangelist, the teacher, the apostles were for the equipping of the saints so that the saints could do the work of the ministry. This is not a spectator sport. We're not here to say, yo, get Jesse, get that soul winning done out there. Go, Louie. It's the saints that do the work of the ministry, the believers, for the building up of the body of Christ. The building up of the body of Christ. Two things. You add more bricks in the wall, you add more members to the church, or you strengthen what's there. You put a buttress on the outside so the wall doesn't collapse. You build one another up, you add more people to the assembly. And we go back to verse 10. I'm going to pick a... Pick a slide here. There, verse 10, Paul says, Therefore I write these things being absent. I'm not there yet, but the reason I'm writing these things is lest being present when I get there, I'm going to have to speak up sharply. I should use sharpness according to the power which God, the Lord has given me to edification, not to destruction. Again, he's saying like Mama did, don't make me come back there. Don't make me come up there. But he goes on finally, in verse 11 to the end. He gives them greeting. Finally, brethren. They go, <laughs> One preacher couldn't understand why people were fussing at him for going too long. And his daughter said, well, Daddy, some people say, in conclusion, and they conclude. You say, lastly, and you last. Yeah. Finally, here's a list. Farewell. Do, farewell's a good word. How are you doing today? I am well. I like that. Be perfect. Be complete. Don't have holes in your personality and your doings. Be of good comfort. What's that? Encourage one another. That comfort word, that's that, that word that was talking about the Holy Spirit some places, that encouragement or exhortation. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind, not at odds with one another. He had complained in chapter, early in the chapters in 1 Corinthians, and here just in the last bit in 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm afraid I'm going to find schisms among you. Be of one mind. Get it together. Live in peace. And then he gives his wish and prayer for them. The God of love and peace shall be with you. Then he says in verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. In several of the epistles, the word is translated Greek and others and greet, in others it's translated salute. Same word, translated just two ways as far as I know. In both of those cases, the word that's used actually means enfold in the arms. What is that? What am I doing? You hug somebody. That was how Paul said to greet one another. Hug them. We don't do that so much anymore. It got abused early on, and so we don't want abuse of it today. But the word itself means give them a hug. And then he says, with a holy kiss. And they did that too. Usually men with men and women with women. 
But that got, they started doing men with women and women with men, and that got abused too. So early in the first few centuries of the church, they let the holy kiss go aside, except, of course, you know, in Russia and the Greek Orthodox countries, they still greet with a holy kiss. And you're likely to have, as you meet somebody there, a big bearded man giving you a big kiss on both cheeks and on the mouth, and it just, that's the way holy kiss is. Okay. We don't do that as much anymore. What he said to do. All the saints salute you. Everybody that was with Paul said, oh, we're hugging you. We not, we're not hugging you right there. We're hugging you in our hearts. And then verse 14, the final verse, the final benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. It's nice. We've got all three persons of the, the triune God there mentioned. The Lord Jesus Christ and his grace, his undeserved kindness, unmerited favor. The love of God the Father that Jesus referred to when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And the communion, that's the word fellowship. That's the word having things in common with. The communion of the Holy Ghost, of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Amen. Great benediction. Three persons, one God, one essence. And there is one other similar, but doesn't demonstrate the triune God, but a benediction found in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, 25, and 26. It's, it's page 175 if you want the page number. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Those are good things. Sometimes you hear a preacher dismiss his service with one or the other of those benedictions, and it's not a bad thing. He's quoting the Bible. It's an appropriate blessing on your people when they leave. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Countenance is an old-fashioned word that means face. So he's going to make his face shine on you and be gracious. He's going to lift up his face and give you peace. Bless and keep. Keep his guard or protect. Bless, guard or protect. Shine, receive grace. Peace. Those are good things. How can we have this peace that God gives? Well, we studied this so very long ago in the chapter 5 section of 2 Corinthians, at the end of chapter 5, where Paul summarizes his ministry. He says in verse 18, All things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Why do we need to be reconciled to God? Because of this stuff. Sin, it says on it, if you can't read that. But if God is holy and perfect and high above us, and we let this hand represent God, and we let this hand represent us, we've the ones with sin, and we have sin that keeps us from God. Sin comes between us and God. A problem we could not solve, but a problem that God loved the world so much that he chose to solve it. God so loved the world with their sin 
that he gave his only begotten son, not to be a baby in Bethlehem, but to be a substitute for man on the cross. Man deserved to die for his sin. God gave him, and when Jesus died on the cross, he took my sin and your sin, the sins of all mankind, and was died under it, was buried, and rose again the third day without the sin. He paid for it in his death. And he came back from the dead to prove it was done. He was buried for three days to prove he was dead. He rose again to prove it was accepted by God. And what stood between us and Jesus is taken out of the way. Verse 19 says, here's how it is. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He's taken out of the way, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He's not putting these on us anymore. But he's committed to us who have believed the word of reconciliation. We're supposed to talk about this. Payment for sin. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. Believe in Jesus. Be reconciled to God. One more verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel message. Jesus died for sins for all mankind. All mankind's sins have been taken out of the way, but only those who believe in Jesus have the righteousness of God put to their account. And pray that you'll do that if you never have before. It is possible to do that until you draw your last breath, after which you are out of time. And so we ask you to be saved while it is still today. Father in heaven, thank you for your word in this study we've had together in 2 Corinthians. We pray that you'll take, it, take your word and use it, and use it to help people to trust in Jesus as their Savior. Help each of us who know, beseech people in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. In Jesus' name, amen.